Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. If you haven't already listened to last week's episode, do yourself a favor, make sure to download it right now. Before we tackle this week's Ask Joanne, I wanted to spend a few minutes and debrief from my chat with Neiman and the dreaded question, are you ready? Which always begs another question, how do you know when you're ready? Well, how did you know you were ready to get married? How did you know you were ready to have kids? How did you know you were ready to change careers? How did you know you were ready to start a business? According to Neiman, you'll know when you know. And I talked to my boss and I told him like, how did you open a restaurant? How one day I opened my own restaurant? And he told me something I did not understand, but now I so fully understand it. He said, Neiman, you'll know when you're ready. But here's the thing. Unless you're of the crystal ball reading ilk, there is no way to know with any real certainty that you are, in fact, ready for the kind of life-changing decisions that often beg the question, are you ready? Why? Because, again, unless you're really confident in your psychic abilities, you can't prepare for the unknown. Unlike the 50-yard dash, a straight line for 50 yards on the smooth track with a weather forecast that literally foretells the future, your marriage, your kids, your career, and your business, they are not designed to be completed in 10 seconds or less. In fact, they're made to last, if not forever, for many, many decades. How can anyone possibly predict the outcome of these decisions with the level of certainty necessary to answer affirmatively to the question, are you ready? So, if the honest answer to this question is always no, how does anyone actually do things like get married, have children, or start a business? A good friend suggested that I quit my day job, a lawyer, and go full-time with a Korean vegan back in 2017. I knew next to nothing about monetizing my blog, and in all candor, I thought the idea was absurd and, in a word, impossible. Later that year, I spent some time getting to know a professional blogger in Chicago and concluded that having to answer to brands was really not that much different from being answerable to my legal clients. Why trade one stress for another? More specifically, why would I give up an albeit soul-sucking job that paid really good money for a slightly less soul-sucking job that seemed to pay a lot less money? But over the next several months, I spoke with all kinds of entrepreneurs who encouraged me to do just that. And before I knew it, I replaced the word impossible with highly unlikely. In late 2017, I was introduced to a literary agent who worked with me over the course of the next year to put together a book proposal. Now, At the time, I harbored zero dreams of publishing a cookbook. I was a full-time partner at a large law firm, and my dreams, if you could even call them that, consisted of building a predictable book of business, one that would ensure my moderate success at Foley for years to come. To my astonishment... At the end of 2018, a major publishing house accepted my proposal for a book full of Korean plant-based recipes and stories, and the needle went from highly unlikely to improbable. I wrote, photographed, and recipe tested the entire book 
while working as a full-time lawyer. I treated it as a hobby, something into which I could pour my desire to create something beautiful and my own, completely different from a 15-page reply brief in support of a motion for a summary judgment. I had many, many more conversations with a friend who told me back in 2017 that I should quit my job and focus my energy on the Korean Beacon, and as the first draft of my manuscript came to its conclusion, I allowed myself to be carried away on the gusts of dream chasing, and it was exhilarating. For two whole months. After I submitted my manuscript in November of 2019, my editor came back to me with substantial comments. I would have to scrap most of the stories and come up with an additional 25 to 30 recipes. I took this to mean two things. My writing, it wasn't good enough. And I was an idiot for thinking I could do anything other than law. So the indicator went back to highly unlikely. One month later, the order came down through firm management. We would be entering quarantine like everyone else. I packed up my laptop, my federal rules of civil procedure, and my pocket-sized federal rules of evidence and set up shop on the dining table I'd purchased with the hope of hosting lavish dinner parties. Like everyone else, I was terrified of losing my job. Thus, even while developing 30 more recipes, as my editor suggested, taking photographs in my new studio and rewriting my manuscript over and over and over again, I was laser beam focused on proving my indispensability to the firm. In other words, we returned to something very near to the impossible zone. In an attempt to puncture that haze of anxiety with a little levity, I started a TikTok account. I've talked a lot about TikTok and how it changed my life, so I'll limit this recounting to the highlights. I started my account in July 2020. In three months, I'd amassed 900,000 followers. My editor, who originally advised eliminating the majority of the stories I'd included in my first draft, suggested that we add many of them back. Before anyone even knew I had a book coming out, the Korean Vegan was being written about in CNN, Bon Appetit, and NPR. Suffice it to say, we went from nearly impossible to something more like maybe? <laughs> in November 2020, I posted a video that would go viral on not just TikTok, but also on Twitter. Twitter is where many journalists hang out, and as a result, I was asked to co-author my very first op-ed in The Atlantic. You may not realize this, but some of your most favorite op-eds are often written in less than a day, if not a few hours. I can still feel the sweat trickling down my back while I kept up with emails from my co-author and The Atlantic editor while answering the phone that seemed to be ringing off the hook with people who wanted to hire me as their lawyer. Once the final edit was submitted, I put my head down, luxuriating in the cool mahogany of my desk, pressed against my brow, and said to myself, I can't do both anymore. And then the phone resumed its ceaseless ringing. It was at that point that I seriously considered making a living out of my very expensive hobby, realizing that I could do either my lawyer job or the Korean vegan, not both. And for the next several months, I experimented with monetizing the Korean vegan, I began providing content for brands I'd always loved, like Just Egg, put together live cooking demonstrations that sold out in a couple days, and even agreed to speaking engagements about my stories and career. Within six months, I felt 
yeah, moderately confident that even if I couldn't make as much money as I did as a big law lawyer, I could make enough to pay my rent, my internet bill, and of course, Tinjung, the building blocks of any good life. As the needle inched closer to almost probably very likely, a veritable avalanche of support threatened to smother me. Many of my close friends, my colleagues, my lit agent, my publisher, and even my very favorite podcaster of all time told me that the Korean vegan was as sure a bet as could possibly exist, and I'd be nuts not to go for it. But even so, if someone asked me, are you ready? In all honesty, I would have answered, no. But... What was once a passing fancy or a fun, wouldn't it be nice thought, was now a full-blown obsession. I was thinking about my future all the time, and while it was exciting to some degree mostly, it was really stressful. The constant vacillation was wearing me down to a nub. I just wanted to decide one way or another and stick with it. I was on a long run on Chicago's lakefront path, and not surprisingly, my thoughts once again turned to the big dilemma. I decided to play this game where I answered the question, what's the worst that can happen? With the most brutally mind-numbing worst-case scenario I could realistically imagine. Well, let's see. I would lose all my money, including my 401k, and file for bankruptcy. My parents would disown me. My family would be too embarrassed to be seen with me, and I would lose all my friends. And the stress of it all would cause so much fighting between my husband and myself, we'd end up just getting a divorce. So basically, I would be living in an empty studio apartment with a box for a table, eating out of a can all by my freaking self, possibly without electricity. You see, I'm very good at coming up with worst-case scenarios, I suppose. That's one of the reasons I excelled at lawyering. But for whatever reason, my brain didn't turn and run away from the imaginary future I'd created with such disturbing clarity. It was true. Yes, I couldn't possibly know what lay in front of a decision to pursue a dream career at the ripe age of 42, and therefore... I could never adequately prepare for all the hurdles that would inevitably crop up along the way. It was equally true that I was indecisive to a fault, that opportunity could fritter away in I-don't-know land for over a decade while I waited for the kind of guarantee that simply didn't exist. Despite all the things I didn't know, I landed squarely upon something I knew beyond any doubt. Even if taking a risk led me right over a cliff, I'd eventually land on my feet. You see, it turns out that I'd been thinking about it all wrong. When I asked myself, are you ready? Of course, I couldn't possibly be prepared to handle all manner of adversity that might occur should I do a complete 180 on my career. But readiness isn't really about whether you're able to make the right call at every turn, ace every test, succeed, succeed, succeed. It's okay if it takes months, years, even decades, but once you know that you'll be okay, even if the worst happens, there's really only one answer that'll remain to the question, are you ready?
but what if I'm not really good at anything? What if I have no passions? What if I have nothing that makes me special? So this week on Ask Joanne, I wanted to tackle this question by Skye, who's struggling to find something special that sets her apart from everyone else. Hi, Joanne. I'm 41 years old, a wife, mother of three, and a teacher. I can't seem to get over that I'm not very good at any one thing. Everything is challenging for me, and nothing has come easily or been innate. I've learned how to be a good teacher and a decent parent only through embarrassing and deflating trial and error. I feel like this makes me less than ordinary and not special in any particular way. I face the same self-esteem challenges as many being raised in a patriarchal family and being first generation, but I want so badly to have a talent to fall back on that defines me and gives me confidence. Where do I go from here? Well, Skye, I want to ask you a couple things. Did you know that despite creating 2,100 pieces of art, it is believed that Vincent van Gogh sold only one before he died? During his lifetime, his post-impressionist aesthetic wasn't yet appreciated by the masses, and the Dutch artist's fantastical renderings of the mundane were even ridiculed. It wasn't until after his death that his work grew to be as celebrated as it is today. So, I'm not saying you need to wait until you die to feel valuable. That said, my hope is that you can take some comfort knowing that one of the most brilliant and beloved artists in the world was also deemed untalented, not special, and less than ordinary. As I've talked about a lot in prior podcasts, David Epstein in his New York Times bestselling book, Range, challenges the notion that you need to commit your 10,000 hours to any particular craft to be considered an expert. For example, my husband. He has devoted well over 10,000 hours to the piano and enjoyed a very successful career as a concert pianist to prove it. But Epstein suggests that there's another, possibly more effective way of standing out in a world that seems saturated with talent, embracing failure. By that, I don't mean setting out to fail, of course. <laughs> Instead, Epstein proposes that in lieu of focusing exclusively on one skill that immediately puts you in competition with others who have zeroed in on that particular craft, for example, Anthony versus all other classical pianists, why not try and fail? and try again at a bunch of different things. As Epstein puts it, if we treated careers more like dating, nobody would settle down so quickly. Why is this so important? Because you learn just as much from your failures, if not more, as you do your successes. As you continue to learn from teaching, being a wife, being a mother, being a daughter, and anything else you try your hand at, you are building a one-of-a-kind tapestry that cannot be replicated by anyone else in the world. The process of trial and error is thus absolutely critical to the creation of this uniquely woven you. When I first met Anthony, I was bowled over by his talent. I went home and I wrote in my journal, I have no passions. <laughs> I had a good job that I was pretty okay at and I loved my family and my dogs and that was it. I didn't cook, I didn't write other than for work and I didn't run. I knew how to use a camera pretty rudimentarily, and I'd taken creative writing in high school and in college. Eventually, my experience as a lawyer 
the writing I'd always had a knack for, the photography I picked up mostly to take better selfies <laughs> for my Facebook profile, and the need to eat not gross plant-based food when I went vegan in 2016, all sort of mashed together to form the Korean vegan, something that no one else can do the way that I do. Unlike Anthony, I definitely did not devote 10,000 plus hours to any of these things. And to this day, I don't really consider myself an expert in vegan cooking or cookbook writing or photography. I am, however, an expert in Joanne. And I think it is precisely because I didn't force myself into some pre-designated notion of what talent needs to be that I was allowed to try, fail, try, fail, and try again until all my less than 10,000 hour experiences came together to create something that only I could author. You see, the trouble is that you are looking for a talent to define who you are. Instead, why not try looking into the sky to define your talent? Wishing you all the best. Do you need advice on something, but you're scared to ask someone you know in real life? I totally get that. Hit the link below and ask Joanne. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button below, like or rate this episode if you haven't already, and share this with anyone you think might be inspired by Sky's struggle or our chat today. Otherwise, until next week, I hope you have a happy and wonderful day.